following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. War Games, Existence, Cloud Atlas, Mad Max, Eyes Wide Shut, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Solo, A Star Wars Story, Firefly. Serenity, Tron, Independence Day, Toy Story, and Raised by Wolves. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or a floating face made out of squid robots. Uh, I'm your host, Luigi, coming to you live from Astoria, it's me, Luigi, host of RVD, with my sidekick, Conrado Falco, also coming to you from Astoria, and exclusively coming to you live from the Starbucks Branford. It is Jason <laughs> Carubia. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jason and Conrado. Thank you. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be back. Uh, it's going great. Um, I'm really excited for today's episode for a lot of reasons. One, for the movie that we're going to be talking about, which I'll let one of you tell the listeners what movie that is. Um, but also the fact that I have you both on the show today. Uh, Conrado has mentioned multiple times, probably every time he's been a guest or co-host on the podcast, <laughs> that his goal is to have the most appearances on Robots versus Dinosaurs. But he, I, I let him know he's got a strong contender uh, in none other than Jason Carubia. So, yeah, this is a monumentous day. Uh, so it's also a plus one, I guess, for both of us for hosting. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, Jason, I hope that you agree with me that all the kind of Marvel recap episodes that Lou does with, is it Ryan who goes yeah. on this episode? Yeah, those don't really count as appearances, as official appearances. <laughs> <laughs> they're sponsored episodes. They're They're special episodes. Yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't book Ryan for this one today, so it's just Conrado versus Jason. One day we'll, we'll face, the three of us will face each other in a bloodbath. In a celebrity <laughs> death match. Yeah, yeah it'll exactly. It'll be a big, huge cage match. Mm-hmm. It'll be similar three to Three people our, enter, uh, one person leaves. Like our Godzilla versus Kong episode. Yeah, that's right, with the great Peter Mancuso. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, who wants to who wants to say what movie we're talking about today? Who wants to... Who wants to take that? I think we should let Jason go ahead since he's a special, special guest. Oh, I'm, I'm super very, special. That's very big of you. That's very gracious of you. <laughs> Thank uh, to, you. To give your opponent <laughs> such grace. Uh, uh, <laughs> a leg up. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I guess I'm coming in with a handicap here because I'm, I'm doing this remotely here. I'm out with the, with the people, the common people. Um, yeah, the, the special uh, correspondent. Right, special correspondent. Jason the on the street. That's right. In the field. Coming to you live. He has entered the matrix. That's, that's, yeah. And I, I think it'd be hilarious if it was just me walking down the street. Excuse me, excuse me. What, what do you think about the matrix uh, revolutions? What do you think about this movie? What do you think about it? Do you, do you, uh, have you ever had tasty wheat? <laughs> uh, so Jason, I think I heard you say the name of the movie, the matrix revolutions. That's right. Matrix revolutions. And, and this is a movie uh, that is near and dear to me. I was actually, it, I was working at this Starbucks back when the movie was released um, almost wow. 20 years ago. Mm. And so it's kind of funny that we're coming full circle. Um, we were just talking before the podcast started 
the movie was released at the local uh, Branford movie theaters, which over the past couple months have closed permanently. It's very sad. Hmm. That is sad. Yeah, Jason and I went to high school together, and we I'm, I'm pretty sure we saw this movie at that movie theater, so it's, it's sad that it's shut down. Yeah. Um, this was, of course, like the other Matrix movies, directed by the Wachowskis. Uh, it also stars Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Larry Fishburne. Um, this time, it's got Mary Alice. Uh, wait, that's not her full name. Mary Alice. No, that's her name. That is she her full name. She just goes by that, yeah. Um, Mary Alice playing the Oracle uh, on, instead of um, Gloria, Gloria Foster. Foster. Uh, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about some of the differences there, but I I think she I think she's good. I think she's very good. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's uh, one new cast member. Also, I definitely want to talk about the, this guy at some point. Ian Bliss. Um, this is the uh-huh. guy that plays Bane in this movie. Oh. And his role is a little bit bigger than I remember. I thought it was kind of like a brief little uh, obstacle that happens in the movie, but he has pretty significant screen time. And in my opinion, he is doing a very, very good Hugo Weaving. Um, Absolutely. So I really want to talk about that guy at some point. Uh, and then, you I know, th- Hugo Weaving is also one of the stars of this movie. Did I leave anyone out? Um, yeah, you yeah. also left out tons and tons of computer-generated special effects and mm-hmm. rain. There's a lot, a lot of rain, which is featured. It gets, it gets the first billing on the, on the, uh, the casting call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you do have some other... Uh, well, you have Jada Pinkett Smith as Naomi. Yeah. Um, you know Harold Perrineau plays Link, and mm-hmm. uh, and there's some supporting characters. You know, the Merovingian comes back. Monica yep. Bellucci is back for a second, and then there's a lot of uh, people in Zion. I almost called them Zionists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, not those. <laughs> Lambert Wilson. Um, Lambert Wilson, yeah, playing the Merovingian, one of my favorites, as we know. Yeah, also, the, Gina Torres pops up in here. She was in she was in Reloaded favorites, as well, but yeah. she she pops up in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so lots of people to talk about. Yeah. Um, awesome. The, uh, the I, I always like to talk about the opening scene of the movie, and um, for the Matrix movies, it's kind of interesting the progression of the opening scenes. Uh, it's always a like that rainfall kanji and 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 computer characters um, in in Matrix green falling in that stylized way and then we always zoom in on some of the symbols and in this one we zoom in on the letter u and revolutions uh, and then that turns into this big orange explosion which turns into a green grid which we see is a green city um, and then we zoom in, we zoom out even further and that's just like one symbol in this falling rain um, and then it zooms out even further and we see that we're looking at a screen and it is the character AK, uh, one of the operators on one of their their ships. I think this ship is called the Hammer, um, and he's looking at the screen, looking at the Matrix. Uh, and I just I, I love the way that they open these movies. I li- I really like that. It's like we're looking at the Matrix, the way that the characters see it, and like also it's vaguely turning into shapes and cityscapes and stuff like that. Yeah, they the Wachowskis did a, a great job of of making special effects, specifically computer generated special effects, seamless in this movie. And you know, the you, we've you probably talked about it in your previous podcast about the Matrix. You know, they wanted to make, give it the look and the feel of being inside a computer at times. And it gets it as the movies progress, it gets more and more abstract. 
um, as we start talking about philosophy and as we start talking about, you know, uh, the essence of, of what makes a person. Um, and that's why in this, in this particular intro, you know, you get that abstract representation of the orange um, being what's outside of the matrix and that life force outside mm-hmm. of the matrix, which is really, really fun. Um, I, I, I was reading up on the production and prior to them you know, making the second and third movies, which were released like within months, not even a year, uh, they had done so much fundraising because they knew that the production, the special effects, the VFX were going to be the most costly thing of these movies. And and they also anticipated uh, doing this larger tie-in, of course, with you know, video games and music and films and stuff. So uh, animated films. So kudos to them for, for seeing the writing on the wall of in, in genre changing you know what could be a movie and this is this movie is i I, it came out around the same time as some of the star wars movies you know episode one episode two and things like that Mm -hmm. and and it really set a a really high bar for what could be done with cg um and but as we look at this you know this intro here we're just getting you know tons and tons and tons of what could be um what we're we're going to see uh, the it's a digital paintbrush that the Wachowskis established and uh if you can think it you can put it on a screen you know you can it, they can create it now and and they were the first really to do that seamlessly with with that visual narrative of film i like i like that term digital paintbrush cuz there there is a lot in this movie where they they have to show you something that's not physically possible. And at the time, um, the, the, the technology for it wasn't, you know, it, it was nowhere near where we're at today. But watching this movie 20 years later, like I'm still impressed with how hard they pushed the envelope. Oh my God, it's amazing. It, it doesn't look unusual or off-putting. Like when you watch episode one and they're doing all green screen work, you know, it's it, blue screen, green screen, whatever it was at the time, you can tell that they're working with nothing in front of them. You know, there's that weird kind of relationship with the environment that's not there. But, but with this movie, when you watch them perform, any actor perform, or when you watch the scenes, you actually get a good sense of of this world and it's all seamlessly integrated together yeah it's a good balance i remember i've, I've heard uh, many people talk about george lucas especially with episode two attack of the clones that he uh almost admits that he bit off a little more than he could chew just thinking like yeah we'll do it with computers and then when it was time to do it with computers everyone was like i don't know if we can do all of this george we'll have to scramble and figure it out and, mm-hmm. I, and here you have a a balance i feel of really knowing what is important to do with computers and really make it work, you know, pushing the envelope as much as you can push it. Um, but with the limitations, I guess, or the understanding. Absolutely. Um, listeners, as you know, I have uh, three big questions I like to ask every time we talk about a movie. So that's going to be lose big three. But before we get to that, um, would either of you actually, I when when I have multiple guests, I like to, I like to have everybody go, uh, I want both of you, I'm going to give you 30 seconds on the <laughs> clock to try to describe the whole plot of this movie. Um, Should we talk at the same time over each other so that it's completely <laughs> intelligible? <laughs> yes, that's exactly. Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. I don't think I completely understand the plot. I don't know if I could do that. Actually, what what I want to do this time, Jason, since you're out in public, I want you to just find a random person in Starbucks and be like, you have 30 seconds to explain the plot of the Matrix Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So one of you, one of you can, who wants to go first? Uh, I'll give you 30 seconds and you just briefly explain what you watched. Cause I'm assuming you watched it recently, right? 
Um, so just briefly explain like what you remember in 30 seconds. Mm, I will once again d- defer to, to our special, special guest if he wants to go first or second. Oh, wow. Thank you. Okay. Um, actually, I could probably do this in less than 30 seconds. So uh, okay, The Matrix Revolutions, if you watch the movie, you're not going to understand any of it unless you watch <laughs> Matrix 1 and Matrix 2. Uh, it, we're set into a world of uh, where people are turned into batteries and those batteries run computers and machines to keep the people at peace while they're in as batteries. They've created this construct, computer construct called seconds. the Matrix. Uh, and the Matrix now uh, is becoming uh, now a, a fight against the Matrix and the machines that's happened against this uh, human society called Zions. And uh, this is about the war <laughs> of Zion versus the Matrix. Okay, this is the this is a movie about the war between Zion and the Matrix. That's pretty good. That's actually that you you and the last two seconds, I think you got it. Um, <laughs> you were very actually, graciously setting up the whole Matrix mythology, um, which took up more than thirty seconds. Yeah. yeah, I mean you have to understand like this. This is the the conclusion of two big big films that that not only introduced a ton of characters but dove into philosophy and and technology and and humanity and in society and culture. So it's like it's 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 kind of a lot to take in for the first time viewer um mm-hmm. and that's why as me when i'm watching it myself i'm like wait wait did i miss something and i went back and watched maybe the, the second movie again to try to understand a few of the storylines and characters and things like that mm-hmm. okay i think i can do a pretty good job of this um with i think i have a structural idea of how to make this happen all right okay uh 30 so seconds uh-huh. ready go so this is like return of the jedi the first part Neo is in a coma and they have to get him out of it, just like they have to get Han out of of whatever that's called carbonite in the movie. And then we get to the to a multi-pronged situation where there's a battle. Okay. The um the robots are coming for Zion and there's fighting like with the Ewoks, and then Neo is going on a mission to the machine city because he realizes what he has to do in order to save the world is to strike a deal with the machines. Um, it's time. All right. <laughs> Pretty good. I, I really, I, you know what? I want to hear more actually about the, um, your parallels with Return of the Jedi, the Han Solo thing that kind of blew my mind, but you're is Han Solo right. the one he is named Solo. <laughs> good call. Um, I think structurally it's pretty similar, right? You open with like one mission in which they have to get Neo back and there's a whole thing with the train man and whatever. And once the characters are put all together, you get a, a, a second big mission. It's like, okay, now here's what we have to do. We have to get back to Zion before the machines get there. Um, the people in Zion have to defend the city and Neo is on his own personal quest set by the Oracle, which is not unlike the Luke going up to Darth Vader and um, the Emperor kind of like, solitary mission that seems connected to what's going on but a little outside of the main war action yeah I, I like what you're saying about about how you're calling them missions um and because I, I remember reading about the wachowskis and and they're huge 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 video game enthusiasts um and they de- they developed the storylines and plots to the games themselves um and the matrix online um and, and so this film is very much generated like that you know, I was I was watching the film. This this I think there's a twelfth time I've seen this film. Um, that each of the scenes is basically a little little action sequence or mission or something mm-hmm. that have to be overcome with a big baddie at the end. You know, and I like I like that that you uh, you you pointed that out. There's some um, some really really uh, interesting characters that they give kind of like NPCs. 
uh, if, if you're into you know, some type of uh, RPG type game uh, that just give backstory and exposition. They don't really mm-hmm. serve much to the plot over them, but it was important that the characters in themselves interact with them in such a way that is based upon the predictable nature of the Matrix in order to progress the story and the events, which is very much like playing a video game. You know, you have to do something or say something or do something, and uh, you're, sometimes your, your path is kind of narrowed, mm-hmm. and you have to react a certain way. There's that line you so that that uh, Agent Smith has, you know, you know, uh, to the Oracle when they're in uh, in her apartment. You know, you, he's questioning about you know, does she already know what he's going to say or do mm-hmm. um, uh, in 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 what the events of of the the film are. And that's very much like playing a video game. You know, the game already knows what you're supposed to say or do. It's just you know, doing it, these tasks, doing. I, these I like. I like how that almost that comes back to when uh, Agent Smith gets the Oracle's eyes, and later on he's like, when he's about to win the fight, and he's like, "Yes, I, I've seen this. This is how I know I was going to beat you. I was standing right in this spot." And then I say something like, uh, "You know, everything that has a beginning has an end." And then he like sort of realizes it's like he's watching himself outside of his body right. saying that, and he realizes, "Oh my gosh, I've been manipulated into." getting to this point like i i wasn't really in control like I and that's I the really kind of break almost the breaking the fourth wall moment there where we're watching the events of the matrix as they're unhappening as we are viewers of them and that gives us the impression that agent smith for example is actually real and he's conscious of what we're seeing in this in this kind of this reality as we view it through a screen and and uh the, the film of course you know from beginning to end has that breaking with the screen there yeah, they talk a lot about like the liminal spaces between the Matrix and our world. Um, there's the train station and mm-hmm. like the train itself, and all, and like where the, wherever the Merovingian lives. Um, and I, I love, I just love how much they've done little bits of world building as these movies have gone forward. Um, one of the thing, Conrado, the the Star Wars thing. This also has like the classic Star Wars climax where you've got uh, mm-hmm. somebody doing a hand to hand fight. And that's usually like the main character and the main villain. But also you've got the pilots fighting their battle in the air, in their ships. Yep. And then you've got like the ground troops fighting their battle all at the same time. And it's all uh, culminating in one big thing. Oh, yeah. God, I love that ground battle. Mm. I don't think there's any other like robot ground battle that that is better. I, I, I'm thinking about you know shots from some of the Terminator movies. But the amount of action and passion and things that that were going on in those scenes, you really feel for those characters. You know, um, Captain Mifun, for example, mm. is that his name Mifun? Yeah, when Mifune. He when he instructs the kid to you know open the gate and 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 uh, after he dies, uh, oh my God, this the, the the drama there. You know, and of course you feel for the young the young kid recruit that wants to be part of the. Uh, part of the team but he's only there because they needed as many people as possible it's just Mm -hmm. it's such an intense moment yeah i think this is a good spot blue to um to do a favor to former guests of the matrix reloaded episode ab seidel who couldn't who we uh had to try to get him on this podcast again but he couldn't because of scheduling problems but he did text us with a very special request which was to stand up and defend the this whole battle of zion sequence mm-hmm. which um 
which he thinks, and I think I agree with him, I've seen a lot of people say that they don't like Matrix Revolutions, that it's one of their least favorites because of that sequence, because they don't really care too much about it, because they don't have the connection to the characters that Jason, you are mentioning. They're saying like, well, these characters come kind of out of nowhere. They're not some of their main characters. It's a bunch of randos mm. and it goes on for so long. So what's going on? Now, what AB said, Luke, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I'm trying to find the text, but I'm pretty sure what he said was that the, what's going on there, what she loves is that the movie's saying that there can't be a revolution unless everybody is a part of it. Like, like you need a bunch of randos. You need a bunch of people who are not the ones, who are not the main villains to actually get to what you need and to the revolution. That it's not going to be just one person doing it, that you need a whole collective behind it. Um, am I doing justice with what he said, uh, Lou? I pulled up the tweet, or the, not the tweet, I pulled up the text message. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read it. Uh, and you're, you're definitely doing him justice. And I, I, I actually, I found it because I also wanted to make sure we acknowledge uh, AB's contribution here. He says, yeah, my big thing is that people who criticize it, and especially the Battle of Zion, which, by the way, is like most of the movie. So <laughs> um, it's <laughs> at least it, we, a third, right? Yeah, you kind of have to like it if you're going to like this movie. Um, but anyway, uh, my big thing is the people who criticize it, and especially the Battle of Zion, for being about randos instead of the characters we've spent three movies knowing are badly missing the point. Uh, it's true that revolution is only possible if you give a shit about randos. And I agree with that. I agree with AB. Um, these, these randos, Mifune and Kid, um, and then like uh, Harold Perrineau's uh, Link, right? His, his girlfriend or wife Z um, mm -hmm. is like, we see her making rockets and she's teamed up with this woman, Chara, um, who's awesome. And... Watching it this time, I was like, I was thinking about what AB said, and I was paying a little more attention to those smaller characters, and I mm -hmm. I love them. Like they they characterize they they're characterized really well with the short amount of time that they get. Um, especially the person that I was referring to as like Rocket Girl uh, in mm -hmm. my memory for a long time, but I found I looked her up and I found out her name is Chara, um, and I I would definitely love to talk more about her when we get there, but. Um, I, I I completely agree with his sentiment as well. I, I you compare this movie, the third movie, to some of the other war movies that have been made, and this is very much a war movie. Mm -hmm. um, if you watch, for example, The Longest Day, it's nothing but randos, nothing but random characters to give backstory to the overall story of the of of World War World War and the in mm -hmm. D Day and the invasion of Normandy. You know, you don't necessarily need to be fully emo emotionally invested into like how they came to be their entire backstory, but you have enough of an understanding of who they are based upon, you know, familiar tropes that you identify them. So when the drama comes, it happens, it, it makes sense. It gives gravity to the situation. But I completely agree with that sentiment that it's, it's yeah, it, it works in my opinion. Mm -hmm. The problem I actually have with the film is the other sequences where we go into kind of the metaphysics and philosophy because those kind of come out of left field and they kind of fall flat because they're not really talked about through the rest of the film. No, I, mm. I, I'm, I'm actually more critical of, of some of the concepts that they had, but we'll get into that a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's exciting because I feel like I'm a little bit maybe the opposite of you, Jason. I do like the Zion, the Battle of Zion sequence, but... I feel like I'm the person who who comes into the matrix for all the kind of philosophical mumbo jumbo and the ideas. So because the Zion part is a great war sequence, but it doesn't have a bunch of like, you know, obscure kind of like 
hard to decipher dialogue that you kind of have to interpret after multiple times. It's not what calls to me about the movie as much as mm. the other sections. Mm. That's yeah, why I like I, Reloaded the best because it's that <laughs> almost for the whole time. <laughs> I, I think it is, my it is. It's a very full part of this movie uh, is actually when when they're going a little bit crazy with that stuff, like the the train the train station, um, the girl the little girl Sati and her parents Ramakandra and Kamala. Um, that is my favorite thing in this movie, and it's one of my favorite concepts that the entire Matrix saga introduces. Um, mm-hmm. That these sentient programs created a program and they have to like smuggle her they have to get the merovingians help to smuggle her somewhere because according to i guess the architect or you know the the other programs in the matrix she doesn't have a purpose so she'll otherwise Mm -hmm. be deleted um and i just it's it's such I, i think it's such a cool thing i love the way it's visualized um yeah but they're they're throwing around big concepts and and they're not really getting into the weeds of it, which is what I think I have the problem with. Like, so they're using the information that you know, um, you know, we're not just programs. We exhibit, we we demonstrate love, and uh-huh. that's uh, that's it. They just leave it there. You know, yeah. we want to see like how how these machines you know demonstrate love. You know, we understand they have relationships, but we are again we're getting like just the tip of the iceberg with that scene. Yeah, and and we're not really understanding the backstory of the family. You know, it's just we just see that they're there and that they're trying to escape. So it's kind of it's kind of difficult to really understand. We're, we're again we're throwing around huge metaphysical mm-hmm. concepts, um, but without actually getting dirty with it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being spoiled by watching Raised by Wolves because I've been watching that obsessively over the past month. But Rama, yeah, Rama was just talking about that. Oh, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, Ramakandra says, you know, love is a word. Um, mm-hmm. What matters is the connection that that word implies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that quote because I was going to bring it up as well. It's one of my favorite parts, the quotes in the movie, which is love. But like you said, it's. I wanted to go a little further. Love is a word. What makes this, sorry, love is a word. Neo tells him um, what is love. I've never heard a program talk of love. I never heard talking about love. That's right. right. And then the program responds, love is a word. What matters is the connection the word implies. I see that you are in love. Can you tell me what you would give to hold on to that connection? Um, which I think it's interesting. I see what you're saying 100%, Jason, because that's how I felt about these movies for a long time, about the Matrix sequels. And what I um, realized for myself, what made them connect with me finally was that I didn't see it as like you were saying anymore, the tip of the iceberg and we're not getting into the other stuff, but just more that that, that showing you just the tip of the iceberg was kind of a an invitation for you to connect the dots and to continue and to further think about it. And at some point I kind of, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I connected with the other sequences and started to interpret what was going on, the more it felt like a puzzle that was made for me to figure out instead of something that was not explored because of carelessness. Now I completely understand if you are not on, on that same boat, because there's, you know, um, well, I, it requires I appreci- a lot of rewatching yeah. and rethinking. There's there's a there's a lot more to those st- characters in the other worlds, I believe, in the games and the Animatrix. Um, for example, the relationship Niobe and Morpheus. It's just it's huge in the Animatrix and and the video games, and you can't really see any of that mm-hmm. by watching just the second and third film. It's, and again, it's a tough thing because we're looking at just this movie critically 
But yeah. if we're looking at the larger picture, yeah, they're trying. They're trying to give stories. I mean, I think the best work the Wachowskis have done with that is Cloud Atlas. They do a great job of balancing, you know, the concepts of love and relationships with sci-fi and, and telling a story out of time and stuff. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a brilliant piece of cinema. Um, this is kind of hard to swallow for some people unless you're, you're a, a fan, you know, you're, if you're really getting into it. Um, but but that's that's my only critique. You know, you got to be a fan to really mm-hmm. get into the weeds of it to really appreciate it. Jason, what you I... might be the first person I've ever heard say that the Wachowski's best work was Cloud Atlas. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bold statement. Oh, I love that movie. It's so good. Huh? I need I've, to watch that one again. What would you say, Conrado? I was saying the same thing. I need to watch it again uh, because I've heard from a bunch of people that they really love it. AB, who we were talking about before, also loves Cloud Atlas. Huh. Yeah. Maybe I need to watch it again. I, I just don't, I like when I watched it, I was not nearly as impressed as I was with the Matrix movies. Um, but maybe I just need to give it another chance. What I wanted to talk about was this whole thing about love, which I, the more I rewatched the movies and especially after watching the newest one, Resurrections, it's, it's, it, it's like coming back to me how much the whole trilogy and this also supported in the Wachowski's later movies is all about love and this and and they are really I think in love with love and the human's capacity to be humane to one another and to have empathy and to love each other and kind of like hippy dippy stuff that maybe I think people don't associate with the matrix the original one as much like I think we think about it this whole thing about the you know the philosophical element of it like escaping the the virtual world into the real world and the machines versus the humans but ever since the first movie and we we're talking about this Lou when we did that episode that the climax of that movie is all about love and the relationship between Neo and Trinity and in that movie it's only a little bit just at the climax and in Reloaded it's a little more and in this one is a little more and then when you get to Resurrections it's all about that you know so I I really was happy we watched the movies picking up on how many times they do bring up the thing of love and how so many of us kind of seem to miss it at the time mm. um, until they, until, you know, Lana finally made a movie when she was, this is what we were talking about the whole time. I'm yeah. just going to make it a hundred percent this so that you people finally pay attention to this part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd also say that if you, um, I, I agree that they're kind of talking about these very big concepts, but only at the surface level, but I think that the way they do it is efficient, in my opinion, because like the the they want you to think about these concepts. And then after you're done watching the movie, think about them some more. They don't want to be like they don't want the movie to have to be present for that entire converse, conversation or revelation that you have. Um, it's it's more like, OK, here we're presenting a situation where a human being is talking to a program and the program is using the word love. And then as the audience, you have this arrogant, you know, natural human response to that, where you're like, well, that's what separates us from machines. We're not, we're not machines because we're capable of love. But when the, when the machine, the program, puts it in such simple terms as saying it's a connection and what would you do to, make, to hang on to that connection, it's hard to argue against the argument put into such simple, basic terms. So that alone, like for me, that alone gives me pause to be like, huh, well, maybe a machine can love. And maybe I've been, maybe I'm just arrogant to think that it's it's a uniquely human quality. And maybe like, I don't know, maybe that says something about us and the things that we've built. And, and um, I don't know. 
Yeah, it's a tough thing. I mean, I'm going to preface this by saying I haven't seen the most recent Matrix movie yet. Um, and But I do understand that after they made, or while they were making this movie, they they anticipated always making another sequel. Um, mm. and, and I can see that as, as a storyteller wanting to tell a more complete story. You know, get di- to dive deeper into the characters, into this world, into these, these themes. Um, and it, I, I, I can't... I can't wrap my head around, you know, putting a cap on love. You know, you can't really do that. You know, you can, you can, <laughs> you can put it into uh, a different story or a different moment. You can put it in with different characters, but you can't really put a cap on it. There's always going to be something that people can identify with, um, which is, mm. which is really interesting. Um, something that they really don't talk too much about in the movies. It's not like a Disney story. You know, the, you don't have a story about family, which is the traditional Disney story. Um, you do have some type of relationships with family that they talk, like kind of briefly touch on with the, uh, the, uh, the programs, um, and then you do have a little bit about, you know, uh, relationships and starting a family, but ultimately it's not a, it's not a, a movie kind of like, uh, uh, like any of the Pixar movies or any of the other movies, um, that are traditionally about family units, um, mm. which is, which is a very contrary to a lot of other films, um, uh, which, which draws it unique. I do like how the, the film does a good job of talking about, I guess, loss, Mm. Uh, and in like doing everything you can to prevent it and, and, and like maintaining those relationships and being lost above everything else, you know, being the most tragic thing. Um, I, I, the, the ending scene, you know, we're, we're talking about love and loss, the, where, where Neo, uh, you know, says goodbye to Trinity and Trinity says goodbye to Neo. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just such a tragic, tragic moment. You know, Neo can't see him, but can see her as a person, which is really, really phenomenal. And then, of course, the scene that I love uh, and talks about relationships and love is when Neo says goodbye to Morpheus. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is the person who pulled him from the Matrix, you know, the prophet Morpheus, and trained him and taught him how, how the world was and awakened him and opened his mind. The one who made him um, believe in himself believe in himself yeah believe that he was the one and that 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 moment i think was probably the most touching moment of other than you know than trinity's death is the most touching moments of the movie you know this is a character that they you know, we followed from beginning to end for the entire series and when they say goodbye you know that they're never going to see each other ever again yeah there's there's a heavy theme of loss and sacrifice and i and and they kind of talk about it in this term which is if another part of that com- that same conversation about love karma Mm. Um, Ramakandra defines karma as uh, another way of saying what I am here to do. And mm-hmm. I think like, it's another argument for what A.B. was saying. And I think what we all agree with that, that like, we have to see this big battle with these characters that are minor characters, because these are the people Neo is sacrificing himself for. And if instead all of that stuff was taken care of by main characters, then we wouldn't have we wouldn't have anybody to really like the people there would be nobody representing the people that we're sacrificing for so we wouldn't really like it wouldn't really make as big of an impact when mm-hmm. neo and trinity sacrifice themselves at the end because it's like i don't know like w- what we do get is mafune the kid chara all of those people and we care about them like and it's only brief moments but we care that this is what we're saving this is what we're fighting for yeah, I think it's very important what Jason was saying about they really want to go beyond the family unit in terms of understanding love. And, you know, they have at the center the romantic love between 
Neo and Trinity, but they also want it to be a thing of like, oh, humanity is worth, uh, you know, loving. And, mm. and, and the other thing, the other kind of love that Jason and you were kind of getting at, but didn't mention it explicitly, but I do want to say it's also self-love, like you were saying, right? Like believe in yourself, the way that Morpheus made Neo believe in himself and that gave meaning to his life. And the way that all these people who are fighting the battle, you know, that when when the kid pulls off the the opening of the gate, he says, Neo, I believe, you know, before mm-hmm. shooting the final thing that opens the gate. And at the end, very end of the movie, the Oracle, the last thing she says is, I, you know, I didn't know it was going to happen, but I believed, you know. And also Trinity says to Neo, I believed in you, you know, like it, it's yeah, like very much. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about me that this, the concept of love is very much uh, throughout the entire film, especially selfless love and sacrifice. Like, should we rename this movie, the matrix, the things I do for love or rename <laughs> the matrix, like the matrix crucifixion or something like that, or, or something along those lines, because it is a lot of selfless love that the acts of selfless love that people do, the, the sacrifice that we see throughout the entire movie is mm-hmm. nothing but sacrifice of every single yep. character. Totally. And from the beginning, what Lou was saying, the scene of the train, right? The parents sacrificing themselves to keep their daughter alive, to give her a chance. And yeah. the, the, the father, this is an interesting detail. His, um, his job, what, what he is the program that runs things, uh, the, he's the program that is the power plant systems manager for recycling ops. Conrado, we talked about this moment in the first movie where they show... Um, like an old person's body being broken down into black goo. And then that's being like fed into one of the pods that a little Mm -hmm. baby is in and the baby is absorbing all those nutrients and whatever. That's what this guy does. Like that's what he meant. He manages that power plant. Like that's, it's kind of crazy. Like he is in charge of, and, and I'm speculating, I could be wrong about that detail, but from from what he said and from what I understand of how the Matrix world works, like he is in charge of arguably the, the most cold, uh, terrifying like aspect of the machine of the Matrix running. Um, mm-hmm. And yet he's such a compassionate, like uh, loving being. It's interesting, right? I think that's a very interesting thing in this movie and in all of the Matrix sequels especially, is the Wachowski's insistence that the problem, that the enemy is not machines as in robots or technology, but the the machine, right? The problem mm-hmm. is the, the, the system that turns you into a cog and not into a person or a machine or a robot who is capable of having that connection, right? I think that's why love comes over and over again. And I think they do think the difference is not between man and machine. The difference is between those who are able to love and those who decide not to. But actually it's more so that. It's not who's able or not able, it's who chooses to do it. Because another word that they keep using again and again is choose. And Neo, when Agent Smith in the climactic battle tells us, why do you get up, Mr. Anderson? Why do you keep fighting? And he says, because I choose to, mm-hmm. you know? So, and that comes up again and again. So I think that's very important to the whole, to understand the whole thing. I, I like I like how you use that word recycling uh, for his name title. He's at the same time talking about karma, because karma as a concept, and we're looking at just a you know ten thousand foot view of what karma is. It is that concept of recycling energies in life, mm-hmm. you know. And he's in charge of karma. I mean, imagine that, you know, 
um, mm. you know, transferring karma from one place to another, whether it's human life or whether it's, you know, mechanical life, whether it's just energy in general, it's just recycling life. And that one of those things being love. And I think that's why Cloud Atlas is a little bit more understand what karma as karma film, you know, because mm. it's, it's very much um, blat- like obvious what karma is in that film versus yeah. this film. But this film, absolutely, in the Matrix series, once you realize it, it's all about karma. It's about yeah. rebirth, uh, living your life to the extent it can be, and then that life force transferring to another life. Um, yeah. it's, it's such an interesting, you know, concept. And, and that's so interesting that he's the one, sorry, Lou, to, that he, that Rama is the guy who brings up karma because um, he says, this is, you know, karma is what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. And he seems to, you know, if it's true that like you're saying, Lou, that he's in charge of recycling this human beings into batteries kind of a thing and to feed humans with humans, he seems to have finally found his purpose in the, his daughter, not in the job yep. that he was doing all the time, but he was finally saying like, well, this is what I'm here to do is to bring this person to the world. Yep. You know, which is interesting. And it's, I, I, it's, I would say like, ultimately the enemy, um, I, I, I love what you said, Conrado, the machines are not the enemy. Ultimately it's, it's annihilation. What everybody is fighting for is to continue to exist in some way. Um, the Oracle has realized this. Uh, Neo has realized this. Agent Smith has realized this. And like, that's what they're all fighting for. And ultimately that's how Neo convinces the machines to let him sacrifice himself um, Mm -hmm. in exchange for them freeing whoever wants to be freed from the matrix. Because the machines realize if we continue doing what we're doing, which we originally started doing just out of a sense of desperate survival. But if we continue doing this, um, we're going to annihilate ourselves too, and, or we're mm-hmm. going to allow ourselves to be annihilated by something we created, Agent Smith. And so, like, ultimately, that's what it is. Is like every everybody is fighting for existence, and the only way, um, Jason, this reminds me of war games. The only way, a curious game. The only way to win is to not play. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're all Mitch forced into playing it, though. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, Yes. I just, speaking of existence, I just watched that movie this morning again with Jude Law. And uh, it's, it's just a crazy, crazy, crazy movie. And it's just disturbing and disgusting to watch from beginning to end. What and movie, really, movie is that? Existence. Oh, right. The Cronenberg I've never movie. Seen right? Cronenberg. Yeah, that's right. What's it about? Uh, so it's about a video game developer. Uh, and uh, she's premiering a new video game. And uh, the the game... Uh, someone tries to assassinate her while they're trying to premiere do this demonstration of the game. The game is a virtual reality game. Uh, and uh, they, they basically Jude Law's character is, is set to protect her while there is this cabal of of anti-VR people trying to kill them. And, huh. it, talks, and it talks a lot about, you know, uh, VR constructs and video games and talks a little bit about society and culture. And it's at the same time, we talked about a little bit, that, that scene where he's constructing the gun out of bones and materials being the most disgusting scene in the world. But the whole entire movie is, is yeah, it's all, it's all about existentialism and, and uh, 
what makes a person and, and our motivations and, and, and uh, how we're all playing so much of a game in life at the same time being a really, really disturbing horror film. I turned it on mm-hmm. this morning and my girlfriend <laughs> walked into the room and it was the scene where they're, they're um, like just dissecting frogs to, to build parts for the game consoles. And it's the most ah. disturbing scene that you'll ever see. Uh, it's not supposed to be, but just the way that they design it because it's, it's ultimately a horror film. Uh, it's just it's just very very off putting. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard a, a number of people uh, talk about it in comparison with The Matrix because also you know thematically, of course, but also they came out the same year, which is also interesting. They did. It came out in 1999. It didn't have the budget that The Matrix had, but it kind of goes into a deep philosophical uh, discussion about you know video games choice. You know what we do uh, as people um, and what motivates us. It's it's actually it's very very interesting. Cronenberg does a great job with it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay, go ahead. I was going to say we mentioned Agent Smith, and you know Lou how I'm in a quest to finally understand Agent Smith and what he's all about in these movies. Mm-hmm. But then when I was going to say, can we talk about Smith for a second? I also realized you haven't even gone to Lou's big three, so I think we should just go into that. <laughs> Uh, yes, I was going to say, this is a good time to go into the Lose Me Theory because it touches on a couple of things that we've been talking about already. Um, and I think it'll lead into a, a more in-depth discussion on some of those things. So Lose Big Three, number one, you both, um, you both have heard the theme music, uh, so I'm not going to play it now, but um, this is the cue I'm gonna, the, for myself later for editing. This is the cue for the music for Lose Big Three. Do, 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 lose big three with you and me. We're going to have fun with fucking lose big three. <laughs> wow. Wasn't that a great theme song? Lose big three. Um, so, Never gets old. <laughs> I mean, Ryan's his voice is just really coming along. <laughs> uh, lose big three. Number one. Why is this called revolutions with an S? Mm. It's, it's one revolution. It's one big revolution, right? That's an interesting question. Here's what I'm going to say in trying to be kind of like bring together everything we've been talking about. I will go back to that text that A.B. sent and we were saying about the battle of science to say revolutions because every single person who is acting in the revolution is having a mini revolution of themselves. Okay. So, you know, so it's kind of like a thing of accentuating again the collective. It's not just Neo. It's everyone who helps it. Okay. Yeah, that that's definitely a good analysis. I like that. Um, I also like the concept of this is not the first time this revolution has happened. You know, the the Matrix True. has the the machines have destroyed Zion multiple times. What is it? The last movie they said nine times or something. No, I, I think remember. this is like version six. Version six. Yeah. yeah. So this mm-hmm. is the one that Zion wasn't destroyed. So, but we have to talk about it in that vein. Um, there's been multiple resolutions before. That's a great point. And, and I was going to say also that we know these movies have, like Jason was saying at the beginning with the screen and that, you know, putting yourself into looking at the movie by looking at a computer or whatever. There's like a meta element to them or like an interactive element. They're always kind of like speaking to the audience in a way, right? The first movie ends with Rage Against the Machine singing <laughs> Wake Up, you know? So they're like talking to the audience directly. Yep. I think revolutions could also be that, you know, it's not revolution in this movie, but also revolution maybe outside of this movie. I think, a, I think a good analysis would be, they just like to have another R movie, uh, R word in there. So they had re- reloaded revolutions and resurrection. What's the next one it's, going to be? Well, it's resurrections again. Resurrections. Like they add the S. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 
That is a little bit more obvious why it's S <laughs> and not just one. I think Lou haven't seen that movie, but um, it is. But, but I'm worried. I'm worried we're spoiling. Yeah, no, no, I won't go into it. I won't go into it. I will say... (laughs) The next movie is going to be the Matrix reboots. Yeah, reboots. Matrix reheated. Which, honestly, that's what it could... It could be called that because that's literally, like like we just said, like they've talked about the Matrix has been rebooted six times. So they... It's a technology reference, yeah. The Matrix reboots. Um, (laughs) (laughs) With an S, that sounds so funny. And also booting is a a term for throwing up. It's like an offhand color reference for throwing up. (laughs) The Matrix throws up. Uh, The Matrix reinstalls its OS on a... The Matrix um, regurgitates. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Um, Okay. So when... Actually, my next question, Lose Big 3 number 2, it pertains to that. When the Matrix uh, reboots... When they shut, if they shut it down and they they make a new matrix, how much of the original code and programs and things, how much data is preserved every time they reboot it? And like, I really specifically want to drill down into like, in version one of the matrix, is there a Ramakandra? Um, and then mm. when they're going to reboot it. Is he like an efficiently running program that they don't need to fix that? They have other things they need to fix. So they like put that in a in a different folder or on an external drive. And then once it's rebooted, they reinstall that program. Mm-hmm. Or do they rewrite every single program from scratch? Can you I, can you talk about this without spoiling the, the most recent movie for me? Is that is that something? I, I, I was gonna say can. that's a little hard to say, actually. Yeah. But, but I think the answer is a little bit answered there. I will say, Lou, that you have kind of like um, answered your question a little bit in the sense of, you know, just saying without spoiling, knowing what happens in the in the fourth movie, I think the question is, it's about, it's up to each individual program, right? I think what you said is totally possible that I think there are programs that continue from one iteration to the other. For example, the architect and the Oracle say that they've been around for multiple versions of the Matrix, but yes. not since the beginning, right? So... And I think so. So Ramakandra or the Merovingian or whatever, um, I think they could be recurring characters that don't get deleted and created completely anew each time because they do seem to have memories of older versions of the Matrix. Hmm. Okay. If Smith, if Smith were to win, what would he? What would he do? Like, what would he actually do? I'm so happy that you brought out Smith because you know that I do love talking Smith. Um, maybe you should have like a, a theme song for that. Talking Smith, talking talk Smith. Smith. <laughs> um, um, like is because is he is he a program that's been like it is his, does his source code depend? Uh, is it linked to the Matrix's source code? So because it seems like his goal is to tear everything down. Um, they, they're, they're, the machines themselves are afraid, and that's why they let Neo in. They're afraid that he, if, if, if he wins, I think the Oracle says this, like he's gonna, he wants to destroy everything until there's nothing left. But what does that literally look like? Does it's that include tough. himself? Is he going to destroy himself? Where did we land last time? Because, you know, the, one of the things of like spacing out the recording of these episodes is that I start to forget what did we <laughs> say about Smith last time as I'm trying to figure him out. I think we said that he definitely changed once Neo kind of entered him and destroyed him in the first, at the end of the first movie, right? 
Yeah. They Ever did, since like, then, handshake protocol and exchange bits and bytes. Yeah, and they've had a sort sort of connection ever since then. Smith has kind of become, and they think they say it in this movie, right? The the opposite of Neo or his nemesis or something that is like both completely against him, but also, you know, a part of him somehow or a complementary to him. Yeah, and so I think I think the we learn in this movie that Smith is the anti Neo. You know, their their existence is contrary. So if Neo is the Christ, Smith is the mm-hmm. Antichrist. And Neo wants peace. Ultimately, that's what he asked to, for the machines, not not existence. He just wants peace. Um, he wants people just to be able to exist, uh, but peacefully. Uh, Smith wants the opposite. He wants destruction. He wants war. He wants death. So it's kind of that, yeah. that yin and yang mentality. What Smith wants, he's, yeah, he's basically the Antichrist. And he's also, I think that's a great way to put it, Jason. I think, you know, I, going a little into other, a little further into this idea, Neo is fueled by love. Smith seems to be fueled by hate. Mm-hmm. And Neo is, like we were talking about before, very selfless and, and about helping the other people. Smith is all about replicating himself, right? And and, and kind of like over uh, taking over everything. I think he just yeah. wants to be him and nothing else, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. We could probably like pinpoint every deadly sin in Smith at one point throughout the three movies, um, and all the ethically wrong things that a person should do. He probably demonstrates that. But if Smith if Smith wins, the Matrix is no longer running because it it relies on human batteries, which relies on people being in the matrix, blue pills, um, keeping their electrical brain energy running to keep the batteries running, to keep the program running. So ultimately, Agent Smith's existence, continued existence, relies on nobody tripping over the power plug, right? And like, if, if, Agent, if, Agent if he Smith, takes I think down the matrix, to, he takes yeah. down himself, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how okay many times he's replicated himself. I, I think he's absolutely okay with that. That's why he's okay with transferring himself into that human body. You know, he knows that that human body is finite and he looks forward to that end of his life there. It's like, it's kind of, he is death incarnate, you know, bring upon yeah. the apocalypse, you know, and... and he does uh, have a death wish and, and a total nihilism of everything, right? He wants, I think, mm. the, the destruction of everything and just to, to, just to be him that's left at the end, even if he's the last one to die. He does say, pointedly, not, and now I'm thinking about this quote more, and I think you guys are right, the purpose of life is to end. So, yeah, I guess that is ultimately his Smith goal says is that? complete. Uh, Smith says that, yeah. Yep, yep. Yep, and then that, that when when we find that point out, that gives Neo justification to go to the machines and say this is a greater threat to the, you than anything else. You know, when Smith is get into the Matrix and takes control over it, he can he could essentially you know take control over your virtual lives and karma. So mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 a it's a larger threat. Imagine imagine someone taking control of karma. Imagine yeah. you know, that being put into um, nefarious hands, you know, mm. just ending karmic existence for every every living thing. If we're looking at Star Wars, it's it's very much like the Sith in Star Wars, you know, being, you know, the, the bad side of the force, you know, not trying to bring mm. balance to anything like that. They're trying to destroy life, you know, so yeah. it's, you know, it, it's... Although- uh, what you're saying is also interesting with what you're saying about yin and yang, right? Because in a way, without Smith and without Smith taking over and being that powerful, Neo could not strike that deal with the machines. Not at all. True. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. And it's, it's such a Christ story. When, when, Neo, when Neo ultimately dies, they hold him up like, like, like Jesus 
it's on the cross. Oh yeah, and a big and a big glowing orange like yellow light in the shape of a yeah. cross comes out. Yeah, it's it's very on the nose when we get to that. Um, <clears throat> well, actually, could could either of you explain to me? I'll give you more than thirty seconds, but could you explain to me, like? <laughs> In very simple terms, as if I was a five-year-old, what is actually happening in in that sequence? Like, <laughs> Which sequence? So, so Neo, um, Neo and Smith are are battling in the rain. Uh-huh. Smith has him like in a puddle of mud. He's gonna win. And even if even if this Smith doesn't win, he's got a million others around that'll finish the job. So he's going to win the fight. And then he says, "Like I've seen this. I've, I was standing right here. I said th- this phrase." Um, and then he starts to freak out because he realizes like, oh, this was all planned. This is all foretold and I've been manipulated. And then, then Neo's body is connected to the tubes and he rises up and then all of the Agent Smith's eyes start glowing until they, their heads explode. And I kind of have a general idea of like what that is visually explaining to me, but I would love for one of you to break it down um and and tell me because i'm 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 really i have a lot of doubts like i'm not i'm not sure i've completely wrapped my mind around what i'm seeing there yeah i have to admit i'm also a little unsure of what exactly is going on jason do you have any ideas yeah i it, it's it it kind of baffled me because he disappears into smith and then emerges out as as just death for mr smith and the matrix reboots itself so the best i can the conclusion i can i can I can find it. It has to do with kind of this concept of of yin and yang and unstoppable force meeting meeting an immovable object and antimatter. Hmm. You know, like so you have like two particles colliding, antimatter. You know, positive and negative particles, and it just exploding in pure radiation or energy. You know, so that that kind of when when two things meet, you know, it they're just going to you know restart or re- destroy or or it's kind of like a big bang moment. If I could, if that could make sense. To anyone? Uh, maybe like the, the, it, the, the, the 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 beginnings of the universe. You know, we had basically energy, and and then turned to chaos, and then and then particles suddenly collided and, and exploded in a big bang. So it, it's a. Uh, I think it, that's the probably the the best maybe kind of comparison I can make to it. It, it but it seems it seems like uh, Agent Smith is like he grabs Neo's arm and then he like slowly starts to turn him into a, an Agent Smith. But then mm-hmm. once he fully does, he, it's like it's like they kind of do that reveal like, haha, this is my plan. And like it's like Neo saying, you know, haha, this is my plan all along. And then yeah, my question is at that point is is the deal that he made like as soon as Smith takes my body over, that's when you can kill my body or kill me and it'll kill him is that what's right. going is the is the deus the the big like uh sea urchin um you know collective uh squiddy thing that face that he talks to at the end it's called deus ex machina yeah i just looked it up on it <laughs> oh really that's the, that's the name of the character yeah that's a crazy <laughs> name for that character but yeah deus ex machina um do, is he killing <laughs> neo's body in order to kill smith i i think, I think- Sorry, go ahead. I, I was gonna say I think I think that the that you I don't know if you've been doing this on purpose, but you have actually expanded my understanding of that climactic sequence, which has always been a bit of a mystery to me exactly what happens. But you know, you mentioned the eyes of the oracle, which uh, somehow I hadn't really fully made the connection that you know they talk about getting the eyes of the oracle, and then Smith turns into her, and then the eyes are glowing at the end, right? So that makes. 
that made started to make me think, oh, the Oracle is playing a part in this thing, or there's something about a vision. Neo loses his eyes before going into, yes. into there. So there's something about that imagery and what you're saying as well. I think I'm buying that idea that Neo's, especially after talking so much about how sacrificial the movie is and how much like Christ he is, that he's kind of doing that thing, that Jesus thing of like, I'm going to die for people's sins. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going in there to be taken over. Um, yeah, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. It's definitely allegorical too. In that, in that moment, the allegory there, you know, um, Christ dying for the sins of, of humanity uh, and, in allowing them to enter heaven, that type of concept is very much, you know, the creation of, of the reboot of the matrix at that point. It's, it's um, if you consider an allegory for the three matrix films, you know, the matrix being a garden of Eden, you know, people being cast out from the garden of Eden, trying to return back to the garden of Eden at the same time, trying to live outside the garden of Eden, you know, and, and then, uh, and then the salvation of man uh, returning to heaven, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a similar type allegory. Um, it really uh, is because they, they also talk about how like the first version of the matrix was too much of a utopia and simple human brains rejected that we needed conflict. And so when they redesigned it, it couldn't be that perfect garden of Eden. So just like the Bible story that didn't yeah. work, that first version didn't work. We had to uh, introduce like pain in childbirth and etc. <laughs> right. And, and I haven't seen, again, I haven't seen the most recent movie, but I'm assuming the next progressive story would be an apocalypse story. Um, you know, <laughs> so that's putting that out there. Well, we'll leave it up for you to, to, to find out. I think it's, I think with what you guys are saying though, I think it's also important that Trinity is no longer in the picture when Neo makes a sacrifice. Right. I think that's also mm -hmm. that, you know, what would you do in order to preserve that connection? And I think only once that connection is not possible, is he ready to fully sacrifice himself um, for all of humanity? Um, he turns that love that he felt for this one specific person into a love for the greater good kind of a thing, maybe. Okay. It's also interesting, a couple other things going on there. Um, the moment that Smith realizes, which I love, that he has, um, that this has been a plan, he calls Neo Neo instead of Mr. Anderson, which I think it's a great touch. Oh. And it's something that a lot of people have talked about, especially in the trans reading of The Matrix. You know, like he constantly refers to Neo by his old name. name, but his dead name, basically. He dead names him all the time until that last moment when he finally calls him by his, by his actual name, he realizes, oh shit. You know, yeah. he's one. Yeah, even uh, Bane, even Smith Bane calls him Mr. Anderson. Yeah. Except for that moment. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's almost like, Jason, you were saying, it's like Christ dying uh, so that everybody can get into heaven. But in this... Dude, in this did I just spoil the entire plot of the fourth movie for myself? Like, is Neo going to come back? Because, like, Christ coming back to be a herald of the apocalypse and, like, ah. there's going to be four horsemen and stuff like that. And then destruction love, of earth and heaven and, and oh my god! i don't gosh. think anything Jason, can I prepare love, you exactly for what it is yes, <laughs> is it gonna I, be I, is it gonna I, be like like I, uh, what is it uh um when when people suddenly disappear like the happening and stuff like that you know, like the, <laughs> one third of the population is going to suddenly disappear and be transferred into the matrix or something i love this so much because um i love the matrix four and i think there's no possible way that you can predict what the movie is going to be it's so wild I think that like anything you're expecting the Matrix 4 to be, it's going to blow those expectations out of the water. I'm expecting so more crazy. special effects. 
I'm expecting lots of rain. I'm expecting some wire fighting, you know, some kung fu style <laughs> wire fighting. Well, it is on a lot HBO, of a lot so of guns, a <laughs> lot of guns. Actually, it's not on HBO anymore. It's gone. So oh, they oh, it. Well, let and me know like, when you do see it because I, I, I want to go rent it. It's like twenty five dollars to rent. I would now. love for I would love for you to watch it and then listen back to the things that you were predicting in this episode. <laughs> um, but what <laughs> yeah. I was going to say is, I'm just going to uh, be like, I do it, I do it. <laughs> your analogy of like Christ, Christ sacrificing himself so that everybody everybody can get into the kingdom of heaven. Neo is almost like sacrificing himself so everyone can get out of heaven because they're plugged into this dream world and he's trying to get them out of there. He's trying to get them released. He's trying to get God to open the gates and let them out instead of letting them in, right? I don't think ultimately that's what happens at the end of the movie. I don't think he lets anyone go from the Matrix at the end of the movie. He just creates peace to let the humans that are outside the Matrix exist. No, 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 no. That's part of the deal is that uh, the Oracle says like he to the architect um, that that people will have a choice. Like they can choose whether or not to oh. be in the Matrix now. They're all going to be made aware oh. and they can all choose whether to stay inside of it or to take a red pill and come out and join Zion. So then um, the machine's going to make the Matrix really, really, really good, really, really, really enticing to stay in there. That's, that's well, their new you, job. <laughs> Jason, you just got to watch Matrix 4 to find out. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, okay. So well, I have one last big question, and then we can, then we can like drill down into anything else. But um, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the train station. So this is uh, Lose Big 3, number 3. When the programs, Ramakandra and, and his daughter Sati and, their, and his wife uh, Kamala, when they're at the train station, Mobile Avenue, and they're waiting for the train man to come, and they're going to get on and go somewhere, um, they have luggage. What do you think is in their luggage? <laughs> <laughs> data. Just data. Yeah? Because, like, they're wearing clothes, right? They're wearing, like, you know, coordinating outfits and whatever. But, like, are they... Is it, like, the Matrix interface when Neo and Trinity are going to go in where they can, like... They have racks and racks of leather jackets and whatever guns they want to bring with them. And it's just like a digital, like you click on it and then your avatar has that. Or are they literally, do these programs literally have to go to a drawer, pull out a pair of socks, put them on their digital feet? (laughs) Like, is it a whole process? Do they, do they live like humans? We're going to talk about this like metaphysically. Let's talk yeah. about car- karma. So we all carry baggage and karmic baggage. <laughs> okay. It's all about purifying okay. our karma. We have to let that baggage go. And they uh, do. Yeah, to, they have to. Yeah. Ultimately, they do. There's more important things. Um, but no, I, don't, I think it's just something to make it look like they're moving from one place to another. I think you know, you're right. They're, they're taking their livelihood, their essence, their energies and moving from one place to another. I think you're right. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a great explanation. I don't think I can come up with something better than that. Do you think these programs simulate living like human beings? Do you think they like put on their socks? Do you think at the end of the day they have to put their socks in the hamper and like eventually do laundry? Um, like they definitely well, change outfits. Mm-hmm. The young, because... the young girl. She is the she's chosen to be able to rebuild the matrix, and we can see that. So she can create whatever she wants. At least so, rainbows. She at least makes like rainbows. Did you do that for Neo? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, Interesting. Could we we know that the Merovingian poops. Like that's that is explicitly stated in the Matrix Reloaded that the, it's ma- very the Merovingian important. poops. So I wonder if they soil. Not that's the terrible word, but like I wonder if their clothes get sweaty. I wonder if they you know 
have to I really wonder if they have to do laundry. <laughs> I, I think I think you want to that. think about them like on a computer, you know, the things that make a computer program or managing data more efficiently. I think it's just like a suitcase full of shortcuts, you know. <laughs> I guess another way of asking, are they basically living like they are blue pills in the matrix, but they know that they're not. So they're just like, but that's what they're, I that's think, what, like, yes, I think that's a part of it. Um, I think they have to continue to continue the illusion. They have to, they have to sweat, right. They have to like, um, look real to the, to the blue pills around them, I think. Um, mm. but do you think there's like a, the matrix TSA checking luggage as people come <laughs> in and out the matrix? Good question. I mean, there's the train man. And I, I, I'm very curious about this liminal space that the train man is able to, he's able to punch Neo into a wall easily because according to him, I built this place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of questions about that. If he built this place, why, dude, why do you look, why do you, if you, you could look like whatever you want and you look like you woke <laughs> up in the dumpster behind Wendy's. <laughs> with like with 30 watches on your arm. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's his then, vibe. He just then, likes that look. <laughs> I guess so. I guess that's really the way he rolls. It. That's his vibe. Um, I love. I love how that scene does two things. Number one, there's amazing product placement for Powerade and Weetabix. Uh, and there, it, no, Tasty Wheat. Tasty Wheat. That's what it. Tasty, tasty Wheat. Wheat, which yep. is the fictional breakfast everything, cereal that they talk about in the first movie. I love those two things. Big billboard. Everything your body needs. So yeah, they're 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 world building at the same time as financing the film. I freaking love that, and I mm-hmm. love that moment when when uh, more when uh, Neo goes through the Mobius strip uh, of the of the train station, going one tunnel and comes out the next one. Goes mm-hmm. oh shit, you know that type of thing. I just that's brilliant comedy right there. It is, but here's the thing: if Neo, we've seen Neo enter the Matrix, figure out the Matrix, and then he can fly and he can do whatever, like. I, how how much time do you think he would need to spend in this train station before he's like, okay, I get it. I see the source code. I'm as powerful as the train man now. Like, can, I, I don't, like, do you buy that he's really trapped there? Do you buy that the Merovingian really got one over on him? Or like, is it just a temporary diversion for the movie? I think there is, um, I think that it's very disorienting where he is. All of a sudden it's a new space. Um, and I think throughout the movies, Neo goes back and forth between what he's able to do and what he's not able to do. And a lot of it relies really on the context in which he's in. A lot of it relies on other people telling him he's capable of doing stuff or telling him he's not capable of doing stuff. To a degree, I feel like he's very dependent on the people around him and what they tell him. You know, it, it requires Morpheus to tell him that he's the one for him to be the one, it requires the Oracle to tell him certain things. The Oracle, again and again, keeps hammering on the idea of like i dude in order for you to do anything i have to like go around in circles you know like telling you (laughs) not telling you things when they i know them because i know that you're not gonna do it like you're a very particular person when it comes to that and i think that's also part of what it's here he's just in this new space and this new guy tells him you can't do anything here and he probably can but I don't think he believes that he can. And I think that's the other important thing that we've been talking about. You know, the, it's a lot about believing in what you can do and believing in yourself and believing that you are capable of this stuff. Okay. Yeah, that's about right. He's going to sit there and, and meditate for a while and like a Buddhist monk do some teleportation in and out of that space. I think that's huh. possible. All right. Believing in himself and what he can and can't do and... How did he how did he get there in the first place? I think it was by accident, unless it was destiny. 
We see, we interesting... see him lying on a table across from Bane, who's also, um, who is, who's, who's actually Agent Smith at the moment. And they kind of like zoom in and he's in there. He's in the train station. He kind of wakes up in there and sees Sati standing over him. Um, later, after they have their little adventure and uh, Trinity points a gun at the Nerfingian is like, I don't have time for this shit. Um, and she, they basically like, they, they rescue him. They get him out of there. They go back to the train station. They put it, he gets on the train. When he comes out, they unplug him from a chair. And I don't know if that is, I, I really want to believe that that's not a continuity error. Um, and it's just something I'm missing. But they, he at some point gets, gets sat in a chair. They take him from laying down on a table, sit him in a chair, and plug a needle into his, into his head because they have to unplug it later. Is that I confusing? Think the way probably, I explain that is probably very confusing. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. And I do think that you're probably right that, if, that I think the easy explanation is that, that once they think we're going to go in to try to get him out, put him in the chair and plug him in so that we can, when we bring him out, we can unplug him and we know that's the way that he's back. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're it's like they've, they've picked up like the cloud Wi-Fi signal mm -hmm. and they're like, okay, now we've located it. We're going to plug in the ethernet to have a stronger connection and we're going to pull him out through the ethernet. Yeah. I think, I think it's more so to have a control over it, right? Because we save him, but what if he doesn't wake up because he's not plugged into anything, you know, because... Right. He is in the Matrix, but also he's just in the world. He just fainted after he took down the Sentinels, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, the Frenchman uh, you know, releases Neo from the prison. You know, he, they have the ability of, because of, he, he created that with the, the, uh, the, the homeless guy's you know, assistance. They have the ability to get people in and out of there. And I think they just kind of make a bridge to unplug him from that, that kind of uh in between space and it's kind of it it it's kind of interesting that they have to do some negotiations with with the programs in order mm -hmm. to get people in and out it's 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 kind of political mm -hmm. like you scratch my my back i'll scratch yours you know, there's a quid pro quo there happening and and the frenchman's like what's in it for me and they're mm -hmm. like you're not gonna die how about that <laughs> so and do well do you remember what he wants out of the deal the the merovingian he wants to go pee. That's that's what he wants. <laughs> he wants no, the he, Oracle's eyes. As he well, wants right? the Oracle's eyes. Yeah. Right. Um. Why? Like, what do you think he'll do if he if he gets them? What would he? What's his end game? I think he is a little over his head the whole time. He just wants power. You know, like they told us in Reloaded that he's. What does every man with power want? More power. And I think he just knows that the eyes are powerful, but he doesn't know that the Oracle eyes are going to bite him in the ass at the end of the day, just like they do Smith. Right? I think like that's just something that is very powerful. Yeah. Um, in connection the, with Neo, especially. Yeah, out of all the programs that re re survived the rebooting of The Matrix, he's not one of them. You know, uh, uh, sorry in, to well, <laughs> in, in the, well he's we been see the in end the of Matrix the for a long time. That we see yeah. in the end of the movie, you know. So unless he <laughs> unless he jumped out into the pocket Matrix, you know, uh, which is possible, you know, he wasn't yeah. there. So I guess. Well, he had, he is the owner of all these liminal spaces. So let's yeah, leave he, it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he designed he designed the what well, he and the train man like designed the train station. So, yeah. um, by the way, train man is Bruce Spence. Uh, very very like well 
well-regarded character actor. I love this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, He's in Mad Max too, right? He's the yep. helicopter yep. pilot. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is the? What do you think the Merovingian was originally programmed, like built by the Matrix to do? Like, what is the? What is his program? What does he run? I'm pretty sure he's from the second Matrix, the one that was kind of very, very horrible. Yeah, and that's why one... he hangs out with werewolves and vampires and shit. But I mean, like, so like Kamala is an interactive software programmer. Ramakandra is the power plant systems mm-hmm. manager for recycling operations. Like, what is what was the what did Deus Ex Machina or the architect build or code or write the program of the Merovingian originally to do? Wasn't he supposed to make the Matrix less pretty? Wasn't wasn't that really? his job? Yeah, it was it was make it a little less believable, like an unbelievable. What do you mean, like to introduce? So like, the problem, so the problem with the first Matrix was is p- too perfect. Yeah, and they had someone come redesign it. You know, mm-hmm. with I think you're on the right page. Yeah, wasn't yeah, that yeah. the Frenchman? But he's so like he's so been. into like refinement and aesthetics that I got, it, it's it's hard for me to buy that like. His job is to make things ugly and and well. He's imperfect. like a Count Dracula kind of person, right? Like he's gonna be up in the tower having a good time, but his job is to make everyone else be miserable. And then uh, when that yeah. no longer becomes the aim of the Matrix, when they want to strike more of a balance, they want to kick him out, but he refuses, right? And he kind of like finds this kind of dark market way of staying. Is he kind the of the, the Lucifer of the group? Because he's not. He's not quite evil but a contrary force that's a good that's a really good analogy former, because former angel you know like is he is he kind of like a lucifer type character yeah, yeah because it's like he wants he wanted to he was rejected from the kingdom and he wanted to establish his own kingdom with yeah. all the outcasts mm-hmm. and, and misfits yeah that's a good call huh awesome um there's a there, there's a lot of things we we kind of touched on bane i do want to talk about uh i just want to praise ian bliss's performance um so the, i mean because there's so many layers to it because we barely we barely see bane before he gets assimilated um and then once he does he his gait his facial expressions uh every, everything about the tone of his voice it just it just becomes hugo weaving like i don't know if they just spent a lot of time together on set or if he just like studied this guy and, and 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 is a good impressionist, but I am every every time I've seen this movie, that's the thing that uh, that's the performance that stands out to me is this guy playing somebody playing he, Agent Smith. Yeah, it's a very fun performance, um, which I think makes up for the for my you know I was here last episode like bad mouthing Bane all the time saying like who's this random guy I don't care about him like what terrible villain um he does make up for it by having such a great hugo weaving impersonation i think <laughs> yeah he does he, i mean they they cast him specifically for one thing and can you be like like hugo weaving and, and he does a great job of it um yeah at the same time it's completely natural it's not doing a caricature in any way it's mm-hmm. you just believe that he has become that character he has all the mannerisms down perfectly you know the voice the, the voice uh, is perfect the cadence, tone, of the voice, the cadence. Yeah. it's just yeah. everything um and it has to be measured in a way where it can't be that over the top because then he would give away the game like there has to be that moment of realization for neo when he's talking to him and he's like wait a minute I don't know how this is possible, but you're definitely Agent Smith. 
Here's, um, here's something really interesting. I'm looking at the, the uh, casting notes here. He does the voice of Agent Smith in the video game. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that makes sense. So it's a hop, skip, and a jump for him to embody that role at times. And, and so good job. Yeah. That's great. Good for him. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, cool. I, I mean, I have a lot of notes here, but, um, we've kind of, we kind of jumped around a little bit. Is there anything, is there anything that you guys want to drill down into? Um, much like, much like the machines using their power drill to, Oh drill my gosh. Zion? Let's, let's, let's drill down into that drill into Zion. Oh, that, that whole entire scene, uh, with, with the, uh, the, the mechs and, uh, and, and Captain, Mifune or Mifune, whatever its name is. Mm-hmm. Um, can, we, can we talk about the mechs for one second? What are yeah, they called? the APUs. APUs. Fucking rule. I love these what, things. What does APU stand for? Our armored personnel unit. Armored personnel unit. And mm-hmm. the APUs, if, if you're looking at how they made them, there is a practical that the actor is sitting in, and then there is a computer-generated element around the practical, and they oh, sync cool. them up perfectly. Yeah, like they it's look just, fantastic. It's just the cockpit that the, that the, uh, the mm-hmm. actor is sitting in and manipulating, and all the guns and the legs and everything that are moving around them. And it's such it's, – it's wizardry. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's magic. And just watching these things battle inside – the, was it the temple in Zion? Uh, it, as the swarms, and I, I say swarms because they trickle in first. The squids trickle in first, but then they come in and it's like a school of fish, you mm-hmm. know, moving in one as as they attack the these uh, these mechs. It's it's just amazing to watch. Never in my mind had I before seeing this movie that I think we would get to this point watching a film technologically wise. You know, it's this is like the digital paintbrush can make anything happen after seeing that scene. And there's mm-hmm. that one moment where you see a few of the mechs come in and then suddenly a whole lot um, a few of the uh the squids come in and suddenly a, 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 few, a whole lot more come out of where the drill had been you know and they just they just this becomes completely chaotic and you see the captain just just his jaw drops and yeah, well, uh, it, it knuckle up <laughs> right knuckle up oh my gosh it's like every everything you want to see in that that battle in in aliens you know mm. where, where she's fighting the alien, but it's a whole lot more aliens and a whole lot more mechs, and 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 of course things get hairy. And just mm-hmm. just one of these sentinels is scary on its own. Like we've seen them close up, we've seen all of their sharp appendages that come out and how fast they are, and they can float. Um, and so we've seen like how dangerous and scary just one of these are. And so now there are, it's multiplied by such a, a high number. It's it's. There's mm-hmm. so many of them. I think in the last movie they talked about how like the the machines are literally sending like one sentinel for each human that's in Zion. So it's in like I, what is it like the ten tens of thousands, um, probably. Yeah. And the imagery is really you know like um, kind of apocalyptic, like Jason was saying before. Um, it's almost like a I don't know like a Hieronymus Bosch painting of some. There's like a shot where they, they it's kind of like a straight on horizontal shot of the dock and the machine, and you can just see like the swarm of the sentinels going around as they're shooting, and it looks mm. like yeah, like it looks like an inferno. It's like you know completely um, crazy. And they, uh, if you've seen the Animatrix, it's interesting that like they have APUs 
they show like the original war of between the humans and the machines in the animatrix and they have these apus but they're much more covered like the 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 cockpit is is covered in armor um mm. so there's a layer between like them and 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 they're not as exposed and i mean it kind of like the the evolution of the design of them up to this point kind of tells the story that like their resources are running out they can't protect the the person in the cockpit uh that's not as important as loading it up with guns that can shoot things down because that's it that's about as long as the thing is going to last before it gets killed um and i was also doing a little bit of reading about the design of them and they said that like that's also something that's implied is that they realized at one point if the if the apu gets disabled it's just a slower death for the pilot if they're completely armored because that right. just means the machines have to dig into it in order to kill them and they're going to do that um, right and we we see that yeah. su- the sudden death with the swarm as as the captain uh, mm. as the captain expires um, brutal Oh. And the way they cut slash of his face, it's so visceral. And that's yeah. interesting to me because because otherwise they're basically just like smashing them, throwing them off cliffs, picking up like the people that aren't in them. They're just picking them up and dropping them or impaling them and killing them right away. But this guy, they're like, fuck you in particular, Captain Mufune. We're yeah. going <laughs> to come close to you and just slice you up and let you bleed to death. Like that. At what point do they decide to be cruel to this guy? I love the moment where Captain Mifune and the kid have where they're talking about the training program or the training for the for the APU, mm-hmm. and the kid's like, I, "I never finished the training." He's like, "I didn't either," <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of bizarre to me because don't they just download training programs and suddenly they know things? No, like, I not need the Zions. That's not for the, in the Matrix because the Zions don't—they're not pod born. They don't have—they um, don't have a jack in the back of their head. Oh, so. Captain Mifune didn't use natural. Yeah, yeah, he, he was. Uh, I know that he is because his one of <laughs> one of his first lines is when the kid is like, "Yeah, I'm a volunteer. I'm gonna run ammunition." He's like, "What's a pod born pencil neck like you do- vol- doing volunteering for my corps?" That's right. So he has to learn the old fashioned way. That's yep. hilarious. Yeah, and that makes sense. That in in the world of Zion, the people who have jacks would be more like pilots and go into the Matrix, and the people who that that fight in the you know with the mecha suits are the ones who cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, they, and, and I don't, like, in a sense, it makes, I think it makes them braver. That, like, it, I mean, we don't need to compare the heroes and their level of bravery, but, like, the fact that you don't, you can't just download how to, how to drive a motorcycle, how to fly a helicopter, how to do yeah. jujitsu. Um, you yeah. you have to put your body through it. You have to put your mind through it, and you have to put yourself at incredible risk in order to do to anything effective against these machines. Yeah, and um, they, they it, talk about yeah. it like they they're calling on on you know non uh, normal citizens to fight in this revolution uh, to protect Zion. They they call upon it, and and the it was the admiral uh, the commander he he asked Locked. for. Uh, yeah, Commander was that his name? Commander Locke. Locke, um, yeah, the guy that's always it, angry, but like, but like, kind of a catty, smarmy bitch. Yeah, <laughs> Commander Locke. He asked for entire citizens, you know, to yep. pick up arms against them if, it, if he had his choice. If it were and, up to me, I'd put a gun in the hands of every man, woman, and child. 
Right. And and I don't mean to get political here in, in the podcast, but it just echoes the sentiments of what's happening in real war in our in our time and age right now with, mm-hmm. with the citizens of Ukraine picking up arms against, you know, oppressive forces. It's just it's it's very inspiring, you know, to hear that this things happen, you know, and people are called to arms and, and to protect their way of life. It's just it's it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. I I love Captain Locke or Commander Locke. Uh he's he is like every time you see him, he's seething with anger, but he's not yelling. He's just like, you know, like somebody's like, "Oh, we got incoming." He's like, "We got a dock full of incoming." Like, what do you, what do you want me to do? <laughs> um, yeah, there. Uh, what else? Um, oh, so yeah, the other the other character that gets like a shining hero moment in um, in this dock defense is Chara. So Z is like. A character that we saw in the last movie, it's it's Link's, uh, Harold Perrineau's character's wife. And she decides, like, Link is going to go off and help um, Morpheus and all them. Uh, so she is going to stay and make rockets and be a loader for a rocket launcher. And she's partnered up with this person, Chara, who's just, like, badass. Looks like uh, Ripley in, in Alien 3 with the shaved head. Um and just like the tank top and just is just a badass with this rocket. Uh, and she, she has some like really, I don't know if she really had any, Oh, she had one cool line where Z is like, I'm really scared. And Char is like, I'll make you a deal. You keep loading. I'll keep shooting. I'll keep shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's, it's like, this is the first time we're seeing this character. She only, she's only on screen for about three minutes, but I remember her every time I think of this movie, like she really had an impact on me. Uh, and she goes out because they're like she gets a good hit with the rocket, and then her and Z are running away, and she gets impaled through the foot, um, and then it like stabs her through the chest from behind. It's pretty gruesome, mm-hmm. but uh, but she dies a hero. And yeah, it's, she's it's one of my favorite minor characters. It's almost a film trope: the most courageous will die, and yeah, they give her appropriate death there, and 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 it's always you know it's always you know sad and tragic, but but. She's, she's definitely celebrated. Yeah. Um, I also, I just love Captain Mifune. Um, he's, <laughs> his whole, his whole speech, his whole like, you know, today we celebrate our Independence Day speech is so good. <laughs> I love that yeah. speech. It's so great. Um, uh, and all, and all the LP, APUs raise their guns up in the air and stuff. It's, it's amazing. I actually wrote that- Oh, so ahead, in, the, in, the, in this movie, especially, I think, even though it's present in all of them, but I feel like in Revolutions, especially, you can really see the influence of uh, anime in the Wachowskis uh, style and, and predilection for action. You know, we've seen a lot of mm. uh, martial arts in the previous movies. I mean, they clearly they love Asian cinema, but the, this fight in the dog with the mecha suits and the last fight between Neo and Agent Smith, especially, that's like a 100% an anime fight, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, just trench like coat billowing as they're flying around each other, doing like flying Goku around each other. Style, yeah, go, like, exactly, attacks. going through walls and then, you know, flying around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a type of thing you'd want to see when you see two gods battle, you know, that, mm. that kind of over the top action um, that, that anime does really, really, really well. And, you know, um, Neo doesn't he never really beats Smith in a fight like apart from the first movie after that Smith becomes so powerful that every time they fight uh, Neo either has to fly away or literally deus ex machina um, has to end the fight for him 
Uh, but, it's really but, just those two yeah. fights, right? There one in there's one in Reloaded and one in Revolutions where they fight. Well, and there's Bane. I guess he beats Smith as Bane, but that's not Smith as his full power, right? I, I wouldn't say. Yeah, that's not so. Smith. Like in yeah, in mm-hmm. his environment, in his element, with all of his capabilities. And when he does go up against him in that in that version of Smith, he loses every time. Like in a straight up battle, Neo would lose to Smith. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, although I think a lot of it, again, for me, the, yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that Neo is just very dependent on his circumstances and, and what, what is around him and what, you know, what he believes or does not believe that he can do. When Smith ca- catches him by surprise by having multiplied himself a million times over, he just, he can only fly away. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really needs this whole, like, moments of believing in himself in the first movie and then in this one at the end as well like you know realizing what is going on and saying i choose to keep fighting and then of course realizing that the oracle has also played a role in in setting this up it also it just breaks down the hero tropes of like you know only this chosen hero can save the day but out of everybody in the matrix the person that's the most resistant to that and like prophecy in general is neo he doesn't accept that. He is always saying, it can't just be me. Like there has to be, there, like other people have to be involved and it can't all just rest on my shoulders. And he's, he's willing to carry his weight, but ultimately, you know, he, he couldn't possibly accomplish what he's trying to accomplish without he people. Could, without he could a, never a have done it alone. You know, Family. he needs... He needs I the Oracle. How- sorry, sorry, Jason. And he also needs Trinity to pilot the ship, you know, once he's, he's mm-hmm. been blinded. So he, there's no way he could have done any of this by himself. Yeah, I love how Neil comes to that conclusion himself. They ask him at one point, did the Oracle tell you that? He said, no, you know, and he mm-hmm. just knows that he has to give his life in order for Zion and, and the people to survive. Yeah. Yeah, it's no longer like, did the Oracle say that? It's like... It doesn't matter if the Oracle said it. It's what I believe. It's what yeah. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. we talk, can we change gears and talk about uh, the Frenchman's Club? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a great so, set piece. <laughs> it, it is. And so let, let's talk about what's going on. Are these all programs? Good question. That's a very good question. Conrad, I'll let you go first because I have some, some thoughts. I actually don't know. I don't know if I have an answer to this. I think you should go ahead, Lou, and, and just tell us what you think. Um, Ramakandra is one of the proprietors of the club. Is proprietor the right word? He's one of the, he's one of the people in the club in Reloaded. Um, I don't know if like the camera mm-hmm. lingers on him at any point, but he explicitly he says, says that, yeah. Neo says, I, I've seen you before. And, he's a, and he says, yeah, the Frenchman's club. Um, so... At least some of them are programs. We know that for sure. At least some of them are like ghosts, vampires, werewolves, like remnants of the, you know, version two of the Matrix or whatever. But um, I do think that there are some blue pills. I think in particular, Conrado, we talked about this in Reloaded, the woman that he gives the cake to. Mm. Um, did, uh-huh. we, did we land on like whether she's a program or a blue pill? Because I think she's a blue pill. Uh, I think that's where we landed on as well. Yeah, that that was the the restaurant area of the club. This we, yeah. this this film we see the the S and M bondage bar. Oh of my gosh, the club. We, you're right. Yeah, I said last movie the the Matrix Reloaded is easily the horniest movie in the series. Yes, uh, Revolutions is the kinkiest one. one the kinkiest. In the series. That's 
I love that assessment. The, the second one has absolutely the orgy underground. This movie just dabbles in some kink. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, I, I think they're all programs in the bondage club. I think that's okay. because they all turn around and, and aim weapons at, at the group that, that were entering the club at one point. Um, so it's like the, everyone is in on it. That the fact that well, I think, could, could this be them exploring their sexuality? Like well, that's the only up to themselves. The, that's only up to the coat check though, because at the coat check is where they're supposed to get their guns taken away. And then after that, nobody else in the club has guns because that's the rule. Like the coat check is where you, you're supposed to leave your guns. Right. Um, Wasn't there so that moment that everyone people, stopped and they had their lives threatened. That's what I'm saying. Like when they go into the coat check, those people all draw guns. And then they have that cool fight where some of them are upside down and they're like running around on the ceiling and jumping off like sideways off the walls. Um, but then after that, Morpheus, Trinity and Neo, they go into the, or not Neo, Neo's not with them. Um, they go into the club and they're the only ones with guns because they got, that was the point of them getting past the coat check. Mm. Um. But you were saying it's like the programs are exploring their own sexuality. Yeah. In this I'm, I'm, ass- I'm assuming that's what it is. I, I, I don't see any other rationale. It's just, you know, other than, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have uh, a scene where everyone's in leather? If a program, <laughs> if a pro, if, if, okay, if some, let's say, let's assume that some of them are blue pills and some of them are programs. If a program and a blue pill hooked up and like did the nasty, would would is there is there any sort of like transference of like like with Smith and Neo? Is there any sort of like you know we we create this hybrid human program thing? Here's something: if if they're blue pills, right? If they're people. Okay, the Frenchman is giving them the opportunity to explore without consequence in this club. Like they, they have mm-hmm. this ability to really push the boundaries, and that fits right into S and M. Yeah, is he's like he's like being the he, he's he's being the you know the the dominator or dominatrix in the relationship, and he's giving he's giving maybe blue pills an opportunity. That it's really really weird scene. Uh, but I mean, how, however you want to take it, you know, it is a, a giant room with a lot of extras in leather. And I, mm-hmm. you can't, I can't imagine they must've done like a, at least a week of shooting, you know, and then another week with, uh, or month perhaps with the fighting mm-hmm. and imagine that many people in that sweet, sweaty, sticky leather in that small, <laughs> in that room. It's just, I can't imagine being in the room at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like I like to think the Merovingian, it's like his club mostly exists to protect himself and to protect other exile programs. But I do I, I feel like he's the kind of dude that would be like send out he would send out like a special invitation to certain people, like you're like certain blue pills that are prominent in the within the matrix, um, that he would send them a special invitation and and they would be able to come to his club and but it's like his only exclusive members like an eyes wide shut type thing yeah <laughs> what do you think Conrado? i <laughs> honestly i don't know i have no idea <laughs> uh, this conversation has gone to a very unexpected place for me <laughs> <laughs> wait so you didn't come on this podcast to talk about all the leather daddies in matrix reloaded i, I thought that's why you were here or Re- well, revolutions yeah, I mean, leather daddyism is an essential part of the matrix, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. 
I wasn't pre- quite prepared for this. Okay. Uh, well, what <laughs> I, I, I think we've gone through all of my notes. So what else do you guys want to talk about? Um, you want to talk about VDTs? So like, I was just asked the question about, uh, you know, could, could a program pass on something to a human? Um, but actually, yeah, they do call this out twice in the movie. They think when Bane comes out and he's talking to them and he's like giving that really weird, like, I must not have been me, but if I wasn't me, who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, the captain is like, maybe he has the VDTs. Right. And I looked it up and what they're implying there is that there's this condition that people, red pills go through called virtual delirium tremens, which is like oh. alcohol withdrawal, out, withdrawal um, mm-hmm. but matrix withdrawal. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting concept. Okay, I'll tell one last one last thing before we move on to bonus questions, which is just for us, for our sake and for my sake, going into, you know, our final episode of this great Matrix month when we do Resurrections. Um, I just want to throw out my interpretation of what happens at the end of this movie and how the climax actually works, right? Because we talked mm. a little bit about it, but I just want to put my thoughts in complete order. We're in agreement that Neo goes into the machines to fight Smith. What isn't clear to me right now is whether or not he thinks he can beat him or not. And in what moment specifically he decides that what he's going to do is sacrifice himself. But definitely what happens is he goes in, he tries to fight Smith, and eventually he lets Smith take over his body because he understands that's the way in which we can get rid of him. Um, Right? They will once... It's just Smith. They will reboot the Matrix, and we will have um, struck our deal. But yeah. he's not able to do that without the help of the Oracle, right? The fact that that Smith has the Oracle's eyes mm-hmm. and is able to see what the Oracle sees, um, and um, yeah. So I'm not sure that I fully understand it still. Uh, what exactly is going on there? There's that, you, you, know, you got a good point. There's that moment Neo disappears for like a scene, a bit. And then he comes back. We assume he's been meditating or something. And he says, you know, it's what he has to do. Mm-hmm, he has to mm-hmm. go, he has to go meet the machines. Um, he has to go to the, the city of machines. And, and we don't know really how he came to that conclusion or what happened in that scene um, or ultimately how he knows this or what he expects to happen. But per- very purposefully, he's, he's drawn to the machines um, to bring on the end time yeah it do you, do you, he talks to the oracle right what does the oracle say to him in that scene in which they see each other uh she says something that i think pertains to this ending which is um no one can see beyond a choice they don't understand Right. And that's something we talked a lot about last episode, right, Lou, about like very, in the Reloader, it's very important that you understand why you're doing what you're doing and why you're making the choice. And of course, in the climax of this movie, Neo tells Smith that the reason he gets up to fight again is because he chooses to do it, but he's choosing with a full understanding of what is going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um so that's um, I don't know. Maybe I have to rewatch this this climactic sequence again to to see what's what's happening there. But I think she's what what uh, her words also kind of mean there is Smith can't see beyond the choice to destroy Neo mm-hmm. because he knows that he wants to do it, but I think he doesn't really understand why or what or what will really happen 
If he does it. If he succeeds. So that's what catches him off guard when he's like, this is the moment. I've seen this. You know, I, I've said this a couple times already. Um, mm-hmm. But when he gets to that moment, it's like all of a sudden it throws him off balance. He's like, oh, shit. This is, I did see this, but I didn't see past this. So this is kind of, this is making me nervous now. Right. Yeah. It, there's, you, you can see that Neo has a mindfulness and uh awakening you know in reflection of knowing himself what his limitations and what he can and can't do that that smith doesn't have mm-hmm. smith is very reactionary and mm-hmm. uh the is, neo becomes almost zen like at that point you know toward the end of the movie you know he he becomes you know one with himself and his ultimate goals and purpose yeah yeah i guess so yeah um and I, I do love that the uh, we can we can <laughs> we can be certain that the the machines are going to hold up there under the bargain um, because the oracle asks the architect, "Do I have your word?" And the architect says, "What do you think I am, human?" Right. Uh, such a good such a good encapsulation um, <laughs> of everything of, of of the difference between us and them, and it's so good. Um, okay, well. Why don't we move forward to uh, the bonus questions? So let's start Yay. with what's your snack? Uh, Jason, you are actually, you're in a Starbucks right now. So I guess you could tell <laughs> us what your Starbucks snack is. Um, but did either of you snack on anything fun while watching The Matrix Revolutions? I, I'm here drinking a coffee, of course, in the Starbucks. Um, uh, Blonde roast with cream. That's what I'm drinking right now. I might go get another cup. Delicious. Okay. Um, w- during the movie, I, I I watched it in the morning, and I had some leftovers from the night before from trivia. So it was a it was half of a steak sub, oh. and, and a bag of of Fritos. Okay. That sounds like a great breakfast. Breakfast is champions, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Did you sell out your crew for that steak sub? <laughs> <laughs> We we actually won third place in trivia the night before, so yeah, no no one's got sold out. But it was okay. it was a it was a delicious leftover steak sub. I cooked it in the air fryer. So it's never anyone's ever tried to reheat something in the air fryer. It's a fine balancing you have to do because you don't want to you know char it. You don't want to you know make it too crunchy or too hard. And at the same time, if you put it into too uh, short, it's going to be cold in the center. So hmm. a lot right. of experimenting with the air fryer. Okay, right. Conrado. All right. Um, I watched the movie last night. I didn't have any snacks, but I did have some of that um, sour beer that we had the other day, Lou, that you tried when you were over good. the other day. It was pretty good, right? I wish I remember the name of it. Um, I'm a big fan of sours, so um, I do like this one. Um, we had the pineapple when you were here, uh, and last night it was the blackberry flavor, which was also pretty good. I also tried the hibiscus one. That was my favorite. Oh, yeah, the hibiscus. That's right. That was the best. It was like hibiscus lime or something. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend it if <laughs> if I knew the name of the... If you see a variety pack for sours that includes hibiscus and blackberry, <laughs> it's this one, probably. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the, the, the sours over the shandies. I agree. The sours are very, very good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, Conrado, if you do, if you just have one of those cans, let me know. I'll put it in the show notes so listeners sure. can, can try to find it. Um, all right. So final bonus question. If we were to recast any two characters in The Matrix Revolutions with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, who would you recast and how would it improve The Matrix 3? Mm-hmm. I have an answer if, if no one, if people are still thinking, which no, go is ahead. 
which is, I think what you do is both Whoopi and Danny DeVito as a two-headed version of Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because right. it would be incredible that Neo gets to the city and then he talks to, you know, a metal version of Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg. Oh <laughs> gosh! <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh! I, oh, I, I don't know how I can top that. Yeah, that's really good. That's probably better than mine. <laughs> yeah. My other idea was the Oracle because you know they had to recast because Gloria Foster yeah. sadly passed away yeah. while they were doing the movie. So I think it would have been cool. Um, actually, not Whoopi, but like Danny DeVito for the Oracle to uh-huh. really, really change. <laughs> to be like, different. yeah, because I think you know Mary Alice, you know, looks different from Gloria Foster, but she's still like, you know, uh, you know, woman of a certain age, and you know, a, a kindly grandmother, color, type. kindly yeah. grandma type. So it would have been interesting to go in a different direction there. Okay. I would love to. See, I would love to see Danny DeVito as Captain Fune. And then and just say, oh, okay, then I, then I started blasting, you know. <laughs> that Jason, you and I are on the same. Yeah, Danny DeVito as Mifune is definitely, that was what I wrote down. That's um, definitely a great choice. <laughs> uh, but then uh, as a curveball, Whoopi as the kid uh, reloading his ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. I could also see Whoopi as a train woman. And then oh it would be a different God. version, but just like an exasperated uh, kind of like middle management type who's like, oh, come on. Like, you keep doing this thing. You like, you know, keep messing with my train. She snaps her wrist out. She's got 30 watches on. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I could see that. Uh, that's brilliant. Um, well, thank you both for talking with me about The Matrix Revolutions. Uh, Jason, I, we're trying to like, we're trying to get like a big, big panel for um, when we do Matrix Resurrections next time and uh we want to get 80 back 80's got somebody in mind as well but we'd love to have you come back but i will ask you to watch the movie first um so that's that's entirely that's up to the you. catch yeah that would be hilarious <laughs> if i did the, the entire movie but just my impression of it like someone had told me the story second hand tell you what that could be fun i'd love yeah if you want if you want to come on as a guest and you don't care that the rest of the panel is going to spoil it for you That'd be fun because I'd love to be like, so Jason, what do you think happens next? And like, wait, what? That happens? Um, but that, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. That, I, I think that would be fun, but it's something I would never agree to because I would never want to have a movie spoiled like that for me. Here's an idea. I'm going to write an entire script of what I think the movie is going oh to God. be. Yes. Oh, that would be great. And, and then we're going to act and perform it, it and see how we do it. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, listeners, I, what I can guarantee you is you're going to get another Matrix episode and possibly a bonus uh, Animatrix episode if we can get that to happen. Um, but we want your hate mail. We want your likes, reviews, and subscribes. So Please hate check us. Out, check out the show notes right into us. Tell us what you think happens in the Matrix Resurrections, but only 100%. if you haven't seen it. Actually, uh, <laughs> I, I do want to put this out there to anyone listening who feels like they do know how that climactic moment goes down. Like, what is exactly going on there to a T? I would love to hear from you. Or even if you same. have, like, some inklings of what is going on. Right. And if they have a deeper understanding of the Frenchman's kink, please, please write in. <laughs> uh, and you can find you can find Conrado on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and all the places. Um, uh, Conrado, right. do you want to talk, like, promote anything that you're working on? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Coco Hits NY. I host another pod, a podcast called The Criterion Project, where we talk about movies in the Criterion Collection with film critic Rachel Wagner, which is always fun. And most importantly, by the time you're listening to this, probably the second season of my web series Wormholes will have premiered. So this is the second season of a sci-fi comedy show about two roommates living in an apartment with a wormhole, an interdimensional wormhole in their closet, and you know hijinks happen all around. Um, Lou directed an episode of the second seasons, and he's also has a couple small roles in it, so that's fun. And I can't wait for people to see it. So you can watch that if you go to YouTube and search Wormholes, the series. Um, new episodes come out every Wednesday, starting March 23rd. All right. And Jason, uh, tell the listeners where they can find you. Uh, you can find me um, watching Wormholes, the second season. Nice. Hey. Hey. And eating uh, uh, steak and cheese subs that have been air fried. <laughs> yeah, and winning <laughs> trivia. And winning yep. trivia. Uh, just, just listeners, just keep going to Starbucks until you run into Jason. He's sure to be at one of them. I, um, I'm, I'm honest here. Like, I might just shack up here in, uh, the next podcast we do and just have this is an open mic and people stop in and just say something. Yeah, you should ask the people at Starbucks what they think will happen in Matrix Resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, well, this has been wonderful. This has been Robots vs. Dinosaurs, and uh, we will see you next week. Uh, say goodbye, everyone. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone. Uh, the Matrix Revolutions, if you watch the movie, you're not going to understand any of it unless you watch Matrix 1 and Matrix 2. You could look like whatever you want, and you look like you woke up in the dumpster behind Wendy's. Maybe you should have like a, a theme song for that, Talking Smith, Talking Talkin Smith. Smith. <laughs> but like, I wonder if their clothes get sweaty. That's his vibe. He just likes that look. <laughs> should we rename this movie The Matrix, The Things I Do for Love?